The book of 1 Thessalonians is a letter um, that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. And it's specifically geared toward um, new believers. So people that have just begun their um, relationship and their journey with Christ. And so Paul is actually using this chunk of scripture that we're going to be talking about today, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, as a transition in the book. So up until this point, so the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has really been um, actually just kind of getting reacquainted with the Thessalonians, um, and then also kind of just completing their general process of discipleship, right? So like, hey, here's just the overarching things, regardless of, you know, kind of your geography that you need to know um, for following Christ. But he's going to make a distinct shift right now in which he's going to talk specifically about issues and questions and obstacles that the church of Thessalonica is facing, okay? But the thing that I absolutely love about not just this passage, but we see this over and over and over again in God's word is that you can have a letter from someone like Paul that was written to a very specific group of people, and it is still 100% um, applicable to our life in 2019 in Fort Bend County. And so that's what I want to kind of uncover, and that's what I want to dive into with you um, today, okay? So we're going to handle this passage in two different sections, um, and I'm going to show you, we're going to actually look at the very last part of chapter 3. If you're already at chapter 4, it's no big deal. I mean, just go up a few verses and you'll be where we're talking about in chapter three. But um, chapter three, we're going to look at verses 11 through 13. And the reason is, is because Paul basically uses this chunk of scripture to set up a table of contents for what the rest of the book of first Thessalonians is going to be about. Okay. So we're going to, let's read this together. And um, there's gonna be a few things I'm gonna ask you to underline while we're going through it. Um, So it says this may, now may our God and father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase. So underline that, Lord, make your love increase. And overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy. So underline that so that you will be blameless and holy. In the presence of our God and Father, when, and I want you to underline the rest of this, our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. So the two things that we're going to be focusing on this morning are holiness and love, specifically love for one another, okay? And so that's the first two things that Paul lays out right here, right? So that's why I had you underline, Lord, make your love increase. That's the love topic that we're going to be talking about. And then right under that, he says, so that you will be blameless and holy. That's the holiness piece that we're going to be talking about. And then that third phrase that I had you underline, that has to do with Jesus's return. That's actually what Ryan's going to cover um, next uh, Sunday. So he's going to be focusing on that next Sunday. So Paul uses this section to really lay out table contents for what the rest of Thessalonians is going to be like. So we're going to talk about essentially how does our pursuit of personal holiness affect our ability to love one another? Because I think it's very easy to look at it and say, well, my pursuit of personal holiness, that, that's, that's me, that's my life. That doesn't necessarily affect how I love each other and how I love one another. And I think what's so neat is that Paul points out in this, no, 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 these two things go hand in hand. And here's how they go hand in hand. And so the, the illustration, the topic that Paul is going to use specifically, remember we talked about how this is a transition. He starts addressing subjects that are specific to Thessalonica. 
the topic that he's going to talk about today is sexual morality. Which now all the parents that had kids in here, you're like, oh, that's why. Um, it's a sexual immorality, okay? And so that's what he's going to address with the church in Thessalonians. That's their particular issue that he's going to talk about. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the type of culture that the Thessalonians would have been involved in. So this is a church that is in the Greco-Roman culture, okay? And in the Greco-Roman culture, sexual immorality was a very common struggle, specifically to new Christians, um, because this was now them turning and kind of going against cultural norms that they have been raised with. And there was a lot of cultural norms that fell into this area that were very much um, countercultural from what Paul was laying out as like the Christian standard. Here's an example. So in the Greco-Roman culture, um, it was not uncommon. In fact, it was encouraged. It was not stigmatized at all for men head of households to not only be sexually active with their spouse, but also with any slaves that they owned, male or female. And so again, that was not something that was not only like okay and fine, it was actually even encouraged. Also, this concept of basically being committed to one person for the rest of your life, and then those two people being mutually submissive to one another, that is not something that at all would have been common in this culture, a common belief. Because the heads of households in the Greco-Roman culture Men and specifically, they did not submit to anybody in their family. They were, they called the shots. They did what they wanted to do. They acted the way that they wanted to do. And it was just expected. And so much so that it was commonly known. And especially if you would have been um, a wife in this situation, that if your family owns slaves, that your husband is more than likely sleeping with them. These were the type of um, cultural norms that, the new Christians in the church of Thessalonica would have been living in, would have have grown up in. And so these are the type of things that Paul has in mind as he's writing this letter. Um, so I want you to know that because first of all, I think if we don't know that, we don't know kind of the historical context in which Paul is writing, I think it's very easy for us today to read a section of scripture like this and to say, oh great, here we go again. This is a list of right and wrongs that you have to do as a Christian. That's all Christianity is about, is you can do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And that's not at all what Paul's heart is in this letter. And that's not at all what the heart of the Lord is in our life either. And so I want you to know that and I want you to understand the um, context in which Paul is about to write this um, letter and understand that. And understand the fact that this, this Christian ethic of, um, you know, faithful kind of monogamous lifelong uh, sexual relationships in the context of God-ordained marriage, like that, that just wasn't something that would have been understood culturally, okay? So that's what Paul's kind of uh, trying to get these new believers to understand, all right? So we're gonna go ahead and start reading in 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter four, verse one. Um, I'm gonna be pretty methodical about going through these verses. So you might feel a little bit like, oh my gosh, she's stopping and talking like every other you know, verse. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I want to make sure that we completely understand the grace and the truth in which Paul is communicating this. 
okay? So let's uh, dive in together. So first verse right here, chapter four, it says, as for other matters, okay? So that's a transitional phrase, right? And those are the type of things when you're studying God's word, when you're reading, look for those transitional phrases. Those are important. So that's a transitional phrase, which is exactly what I was talking about earlier. Paul just transitioning from chapter three to chapter four. But it says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Underline that phrase, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do this more and more. Underline to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a minute and let's just talk about that all right so paul he's what he's saying to the thessalonians here is he's saying hey listen we have seen that you um have begun to live out your faith in a way that honors god with your lives but here's the thing there's still more room for growth and this is really important for us to understand because it's important for us to understand that our faith is both an event and a process okay our faith is an event in our salvation Okay, we've, we, those of us that say that we follow Christ, that we are Christians, we can point back to a moment in time in which we made a decision, we followed a calling of the Holy Spirit, we made a decision to place our trust in Christ. But our faith doesn't end there. It is a process. And the process is a word that theologians use called sanctification. Okay, sanctification. Let me just tell you, it's a fancy word for basically the process of daily waking up and saying, God, I give my life to you today, and I ask that you would begin to transform me a little bit more and more and more into the likeness of you. Okay, that's what sanctification is. Now listen, that doesn't mean we do great at that every single day. But that just means that we are surrendering our lives to God on a daily basis. So our faith is both an event And it is a process. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, I have seen and recognized in your life that you have placed your trust in Christ. And so you have experienced that event. Now I want to talk to you a bit about the process and what that looks like. Okay? So that's what Paul's saying. And then he's going to transition. He's going to go keep going into uh, verse 3. And now he's going to give one example of one area in which the Thessalonians need to grow. And like I said earlier, that example that he's going to give has to do with sexual immorality. But the bigger picture that Paul is painting is this pursuit of personal holiness. That's really what Paul is addressing. And so I want us to kind of look at the rest of the scripture and the rest of the message through the lens of these two questions that we're going to answer today. Two questions, all right? Here's the first one, is how do we pursue personal holiness? How do we pursue personal holiness because Paul's pretty specific about addressing that and what that looks like for us and then here's the second question the second one is this is why should we pursue personal holiness so how do we do it great and then why should we do it why is pursuing personal holiness something that we should really care about all right so those are the two questions I want us to think about as we're continuing on in the message we're going to pick back up in verse three And it says this, it is God's will, you should be sanctified. Underline that word sanctified. We just talked about it. It's just another form of 
the process of sanctification, what we just talked about just a minute ago, and that you should avoid, there it is, sexual immorality. Underline that. Now listen, sanctified literally means, so like from the Greek, it literally means made holy. Okay, that is what sanctified means. It means made holy. But then the word holy literally means set apart. Set apart. So I think a lot of times in our mind, we think like, or I do anyway, we think the word holy, we think perfect. That's not actually what the word holy means. The word holy means that you are set apart. So Paul is saying, hey, listen, it is God's will that you be set apart and grow in his likeness. You growing in his likeness, that's the thing that's setting you apart. That's the thing that's going to have you stand out from your surrounding culture. That if you're saying, you know what, I'm a Christian, then there should be aspects of your life. You should be entering into this process in which you are standing out from the culture. You are making decisions differently. You're using your body in different ways. You're honoring God differently from the majority of the culture that's around you. All right, and then that Greek word for sexual immorality, that Greek word is pornonia. Does that sound like a word you've ever heard before? (laughs) That was more rhetorical, but thank you. Um, Yeah, so that's that's where we get our word for pornography. And that's, uh, that's Paul actually uses that word throughout many of his letters to associate really anything that has to do with extramarital sexual activity, promiscuity, or prostitution. He uses that word pornonia. Okay, so that's what he's talking about specifically. All right, let's keep going. Uh, verse 4. It says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans, and I want you to underline this phrase, who do not know God. And that in this matter, in the matter that he's talking about is sexual behavior, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. All right, so what Paul's talking about right here, when he says take advantage with your sexual behavior, he's saying, uh, he's meaning, you know, what would go beyond Christian standards outlined, not just by Paul in his letters, but Jesus in the gospels as well. And in Paul's mind, you need to know that brother and sister, um, that's not just immediate family, like we tend to use that word, right? Paul's extending that to mean literally any man, any woman in the Christian community, including slaves. And the reason that we know that is because in another letter, Paul says, he even commands that you should treat slaves as brothers. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, This concept of like this one lifelong, like monogamous relationship in the confines of marriage, that's what God wants for you. That's God's will. And that no one should take advantage of your brother or your sister. All right, let's keep going. He says, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Underline or circle, live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, 
underline that, does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So this is a little, this is, this is where it gets a little sticky, a little tough to swallow right here. Is that Paul's saying, hey, listen, if you don't align yourself with this teaching and this standard of personal holiness, he's saying, hey, listen, you're not rejecting me. I didn't make this up. No skin off my back. But here's the bad news. You're rejecting God. And this God is the very same God that gives you the Holy Spirit to work in you and to work through you. And so Paul's saying, this is why it's so important that you adhere to this. It's not just because God wants to give you a bunch of rules and a bunch of checklists. It's because by not adhering to this, you're actually rejecting God and the Holy Spirit and its ability to work through in and through you. And Paul desperately doesn't want that to be um, true for the Thessalonians or for us, all right? So now let's keep going. Um, Paul's going to switch gears right now from talking and addressing directly personal holiness to this topic of love. I told you that there are two different topics that he kind of lays out. But as we dig in, we see how these two work together. So we're going to go through this, and then we're going to kind of wrap it up at the end by answering these two questions that we talked about earlier. So verse 9, now about your love for one another— We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And, in fact, you do. Underline that phrase, in fact, you do. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Underline that, more and more. Because that's a, that's a similar phrase to what we just saw in verses 1 and 2. Remember that concept of your faith is an event, it's also a process. Paul is bringing that over to this section when he's talking about how we love each other as well. He's saying, listen, you guys are doing that. You're doing a good job. I can see it. But hey, listen, we have room for growth in this area. And so then he goes on to say, verse 11, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, underline quiet life. And then he goes on to say, okay, and now now how do you lead that quiet life? He says, you should mind your business. Which if you don't love the Apostle Paul, that phrase alone should make it you love him. Like basically he's like, how do you lead a quiet life? He's like, mind your business. That's how you do it. But he says, mind your business. And then he says, and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Highlight that, underline that, put whatever fireworks around that, whatever you need to do, that phrase, win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. All right, so, so here's what Paul's saying. Here's kind of, the, that's the end of the passage. So here's how Paul's kind of gonna wrap all of this up is that he's saying, you know, at the end of the day, You need to lead a life that honors God through every aspect of your life. So he's saying, yes, you need to lead a life that honors God in your sexual life, in your relationship with others, in your work. And when you do those things, when you can lead a life that honors God in every single aspect of it, he's saying, then watch how God can use you to impact your community and to impact those around you, specifically to impact those that don't know him. He's saying, lead this quiet life, 
work with your hands, keep busy so that you don't get caught up into the rest of what culture is into, what's important to them, what they're finding their identity in, so that you stay with the focus of finding your identity in Christ. He's like, honor me with your personal holiness and then watch how you win the respect of outsiders. That's why he's calling us to this pursuit of personal holiness. And honestly, we could stop right there and we could really just call it a day and that really be the application um, for today. And if you are a teenager sitting in this room, you wish I would stop talking and not say the phrase sexual immorality one more time as you're sitting next to your parents, but you chose to stay here and not go to youth. So that's on you. Um, But uh, before I wrap up, I want to kind of answer these two questions um, that we started off earlier and see how this all wraps up what Paul is telling us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 right here. And so here's the very first question that we posed earlier is just this is how do we pursue personal holiness? So how do we do that based off of everything that Paul just said that we went through that we read? How do we do that? Well, I think that when I give you the answer you're going to seem, it's going to seem like a cop-out at first. You're going to be like, well, that was great, really good churchy answer. Um, But here's the thing. I think this is something that we do not take seriously enough. I know for sure there's been seasons in my life where I don't, that I don't take seriously enough how much this impacts my life and those around this, around me. And so how do we pursue personal holiness? Here's the answer. We pursue personal holiness by knowing God by knowing God. That's the answer. And this is what Paul is getting at in verses three through five. I'm just gonna read them real fast again. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. So if you do a little reverse there, all right, So how do the people that don't know God act? Well, Paul just outlined it right there. So then if you do know God, we should be acting in the opposite way, right? I mean, that's what Paul is saying right there. So he's saying whenever you or I, when we give over to lustful passion, we act like people do not know God. And this means, again, the opposite of that would mean that knowing God is the path to sexual purity then. It's knowing God. So if you're struggling with sexual purity in mind or in body, the immediate long-term strategy, the long game approach is knowing God. That's what it is. Now, here's what I want. I want to be careful um, for some of you to not check out by saying something like, well, you know, there are very well-known theologians and pastors um, who are in bondage to lust, who have affairs um, and cheat on their spouses, who have sexually abused others, um, and they have a lot of knowledge about God. And I would say, yeah, you're, you're right. Those people do exist, and especially if you've been following the news at all lately, there is a pretty big reckoning that's kind of happening across churches in America right now, specifically to the oppression and treatment of women over the past few decades. So while I would say, yes, you are right, I would also say with tremendous confidence, there is a difference between knowing 10,000 facts about God and knowing God. 
you can know a lot about God and not know God. And I think there's a lot of people in our country that know a lot about God, but they don't know him. And that's why you see this disalignment of a pursuit of personal holiness. And I can confidently say from my story and my experience that the times in which I am struggling the most in the pursuit of personal holiness, I can tell you I am not consistently spending time getting to know God. Here's a great example of what I'm talking about. Um, Anybody that knows me well knows that I absolutely love Taylor Swift. I do. And I'm, I'm, you can judge me. I'm in a good place with it. I feel good about it. It doesn't affect me. Um, So I love Taylor Swift. I mean, and I'm not just like, like, not just like, oh yeah, like I like own her albums and stuff. Like I can tell you like when albums were released, I can tell you her siblings' names. I can tell you her parents' names. I can tell you where her parents were born, where they went to college. I can tell you everything about every Netflix special that she's ever had. I can tell you a lot about Taylor Swift. Here's the thing. I don't know Taylor Swift. I've never met her. I mean, she seems like a nice person, but I don't know. I don't know what kind of friend she is. I've never seen her interact with people. I don't know how she treats those around her. I don't know where her spiritual life is. I don't know, you know, the things that make her up as a person. I just know stuff about her. That doesn't mean that I know her. And so I want you to know that when I'm talking about knowing God, I'm not talking about like knowing stuff about God. I'm talking about knowing him as, the, as a person, knowing his character, knowing who he is. And so if we want to pursue personal holiness, we're answering the question of how do we pursue personal holiness? The answer is by knowing God, by spending time with him. And we have amazing resources here as a church that can help you do that. Um, one of the biggest ones that we have is our discipleship groups. We have discipleship groups for new believers. We have discipleship groups that are diving into individual books of the Bible. And so if you want help on how to start that journey, we can help you do that. Just check your connection card on the back. You can check discipleship groups there. But here's the thing, this concept of knowing God, um, this is why if you're in the bondage of a pornography addiction or a premarital extra, a, a premarital sexual relationship or adultery, this is why things like software filters or transparency of passwords, not being alone together, once a month date nights, they will not fix the problem. And listen, I'm not saying those aren't good things. I'm not saying those aren't good things. Those are things that I do and we have present in our life and our family, but those things only work if they're in congruency with the daily commitment of knowing the all-powerful God. If your solution is just those things, it's not gonna work. It's only gonna be a Band-Aid to bleeding, but it's never gonna stop the bleeding. The only thing that stops the bleeding is knowing God. That's why that's so important. And I think the thing is, is that if we could grasp, if we could just really get a taste of the majesty of God, it would have more practical consequences on our life and the areas of our life than any message that you could ever hear from any pastor. Because God is the one that fixes things. All right, so here's the second question is why should we pursue personal holiness? We talked about how, now we're talking about why. Why should we pursue personal holiness? The answer to this is a little bit longer, um, but 
I think definitely applicable to this. And so it's this, it's uh, why should we pursue personal holiness? Here's the answer is it affects our love for God and increases our love for others. Why should we pursue personal holiness? Well, it affects our love for God and it increases our love for others. And that's why Paul puts these two things together. That's why Paul's talking about this concept of sexual immorality and he's following it up with how we love other people right there. This is what he's talking about in verses 11 and 12 when he says, and to make your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we were told so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. See, many times I think Christians don't think that their day-to-day choices have any bearing on their relationship to God or their relationship to other people. I think they view it as they're my choices So if they go well, good for me. If they don't, well, that's just on me. It's not affecting anybody else. And that's just simply not true because it's our day-to-day choices that actually make up our relationship with God and other people. It's the series of those small things together that represent how seriously we take our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. They're not mutually exclusive. They can't be. You know, I couldn't say that I love my husband, Chad, and that I honor him and that I respect him, but then I never show that through any of my actions. You guys wouldn't believe me if I was saying those things, but then you witnessed me treating him poorly. You wouldn't think that to be true. And it's the same thing. Our words, our beliefs, our reverence for God's word They must be consistent with our actions. And that's the heart of what Paul's getting at through this passage, is that through this passage, he's urging the Thessalonians to pursue personal holiness, specifically in the area of sexual morality, um, so that they can know God on a deeper level, and that they they can enter into respectful, Christ-honoring relationships with other people. Because how we pursue personal holiness affects our love for God and it reflect and it affects how our increased love for others goes. It, it impacts that. And the thing is, I think the call that Paul obviously is making and God's making through Paul to the church in Thessalonica is the same call that he's asking of Real Hope Community Church today. Um, it's this standard of holiness that is countercultural. The Thessalonians had, and we talked about this earlier, they had their elements of countercultural morality to the Greco-Roman culture. And see, the thing is, is that there's a resurgence of that in our community as well. I'm entering in right now, parenting a teenager. Um, I have a middle schooler, and I am shocked constantly by the difference of the things that she has to deal with and is exposed to on a daily basis being in seventh grade than when I was in seventh grade. And I mean, I'm 34, okay? I'm not that old, right? Like it wasn't that long ago, even when I was in junior high and high school. And to watch the things that she's kind of addressing and and is going to have to on her own, I can't make her do it, but through the power of the Holy Spirit is going to have to make a choice to be countercultural about as she's working through this. And um, I think kind of a great example of this is not not just my experience. I'm the type of person of like, I like to try to give facts when I can. 
Um, I was reading this past week in preparation for this message an article by this group called the Barna Research Group. Barna Research Group is a really well-known um, Christian research group. Uh, it actually does amazing things. So if like statistics and stuff is your jam, Google Barna Research Group. They have amazing articles. Um, but one of the ones that I was reading this past a week was specifically about that, just about where are various generations and specific uh, topics and terms that um, areas that the Bible would call sexually immoral. And one of the things that was really um, just surprising to me that stood out was that the Barna group showed that only 21% of church-going Christians, so church-going Christians, I like identify myself as a Christian, I'm active in a church, 21% of church-going Christians believe that um, sex before marriage is biblically immoral. Yet the Bible is really clear on that. Is really clear on the fact that saving sex for the covenant of marriage is what God desires. So then why is there this disconnect? Why is there this, this disconnect of something that's very clear in scripture, but we see that only 21% of Christians believe that? Well, and I think it's because there's a good amount of us, I would put myself in this category at certain seasons of my life for sure, that we know some facts about God, but we don't really know God. Maybe we've placed our trust in, our, in God for our salvation, but we've not given him like lordship of our life. And so how do we do this? And my point of that is not to be like uberly convicting. My point of that is to say, so then how do we do this? How do we sustain this journey of this personal pursuit of holiness in a culture that's pushing us the other direction? Well, we do it by pursuing a holy God. Not by a checklist of do's and don'ts, by knowing the God that is holy and letting him work through us, letting him develop the holiness through us, us not trying to strong arm it on our own strength because you can't, you will fail. We do it by knowing God. And listen, this is the last thing I kind of, I want to say before I wrap up this morning. It's this, I, you know, I don't know your personal story. I don't know the personal story of every single person sitting in this room. I don't know your journey with God. I don't know, you know, where you've come from, where you're even sitting right now um, spiritually. But this is what I do know. I've been in ministry long enough to know that in a group this size, in a room this size, um, that there's some of you in here that feel as if you're too far gone. And specifically when we talk about a topic like this. Um, to you, knowing God seems like an unattainable goal because the sheer distance that you think your decisions have created between you and God is something that you don't think you can ever get past. Some of you, and I know this has been true of me at times, you carry a lot of guilt and shame, especially related to areas of sexual immorality. So much so um, that your personal pursuit of holiness probably doesn't even seem like an option for you. Because why would it matter? How could God love you because of what you've done or what has been done to you maybe outside of your control? What well, is my great pleasure this morning to look you in the face and simply say you're wrong. That that is a lie. It's not true. That there's no depths of shame that you could ever carry that God's grace cannot go deeper. And I want you to listen to, um, not turn there, I just want you to listen 
to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, 39, 31 through 39. And here's why, because this particular passage of scripture, this is a passage of scripture that I preach and I speak to myself a lot. At times and seasons that I've walked through where I felt like there is no way that God could use me, I have screwed up far too much. Or I feel like I've particularly disappointed God that day or that situation when I just really feel like there's no way God could be proud of me or have desire to use me. I go back to this passage of scripture and this is the one that I preach to myself. And so I want to read this to you. I just want you to listen to the words of it. And then we're gonna um, wrap up and uh, pray here at the end. Just listen to this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's what you have to remember. It's that what God started through Jesus's death and resurrection in your life cannot be undone by anything you've ever done. It simply can't. And if it could, what a small God we serve. God is so much bigger He is so much bigger and has such capability and so much power to redeem any story that you think is so broken. But here's what he is also saying to you. He's saying you cannot stay there. You have to recognize where you are. Leave that shame, leave that guilt at the cross. Christ gave his life so that you can be reconciled with God but you can't stay there. You have to move on. You have to begin getting to know God. And the very first step of knowing God, we talked about this earlier, it's your faith is an event and it's a process. The very first step of knowing God is that event. Is that placing your trust in Christ, saying, you know what, God, maybe I've been kicking the tires of Christianity for a while. You know, maybe I've been thinking, you know what, I, I don't know if I have a relationship with Christ. I don't know if I died and something happened to me, would I go to heaven? I don't know. Well, it's time to say, you know what? It's time to commit and know you, God. Know you as my Lord and Savior. Enter into that event of salvation and then not stay in that same place, but continue to walk through that process of sanctification, that pursuit of personal holiness. But stop letting whatever is in your past determine your future. Stop it. 
You are a brand new creation. The second you place your trust in Christ, you are a brand new creation to be used for God and his purposes. And so trust that. And so what I'm going to do here in just a minute is uh, we're going to pray. And um, if you uh, have not ever kind of had that moment or made that um, commitment in your life to officially hand your life over to Christ, um, to commit to follow him, um, I'm going to lead you just in a time of prayer. Um, You don't need to like stand up or come to the front or raise your hand or anything like that. Just in your seat where you are, um, just in your heart, you can follow along with me. Um, And the only thing that we would ask is if that is something that you did on the back of your connection card, would you just indicate that? There's a box you can check that says, I place my trust in Christ. Again, not because we're going to, you know, make you stand up or anything like that. We just want to follow up with you this week with just a phone call and just say, hey, can we get you in one of our discipleship groups and get you started on that process of uh, sanctification, following Christ, what that looks like? So let's go ahead and pray this morning. And just ask that God and the Holy Spirit would empower us to continue this journey of uh, personal holiness. Dear Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we can take um, a letter written to a church thousands of years ago and you still inspire it to be the living word of God and that you use it in our lives. You use it to challenge us. So thank you for that, God. Thank you for your word and for that being a roadmap for our lives. And Father, I pray this week um, for those of us that um, have committed to know you as our Lord and as our Savior, God, would we uh, continue to pursue knowing you? Or God, or maybe if we've fallen off that wagon a little bit, would we get back on this week? Would you lead our hearts? If that's getting involved in a discipleship group, would you do that? If that's... uh, fixing our schedules and carving out time to consistently meet with you every day, God, would we do that? Whatever it may be for us in our personal situation, would you give us the strength and the boldness to do that and to commit to knowing you? And then would you use that, God, to increase our love for those around us and for others?